You're listening to the In the Rhythm podcast from the Johnson & Johnson Institute. Dr. Knight and Dr. Dowd are being compensated by and presenting on behalf of Biosense Webster, Inc. and must present information in accordance with applicable regulatory requirements. I strongly believe that success of programs is, is entirely based on people. I would recommend people focusing on making sure that they're challenged and enjoying. They want to come to work and they're motivated for that. It's important to not ask anybody to do things that you're not willing to do. I think it's important for the person who's running the EP program to do all those activities that you're expecting your colleagues to do. You're a little more empathetic and you know how to address issues that come up. Welcome to this edition of the In the Rhythm podcast from Biosense Webster. We've got a great program lined up and we're going to be speaking with two EP lab directors and get their perspectives on leading the lab. We have a fantastic program lined up for you, so let's get right to it. I'd like to welcome Dr. Emily Dowd to the program. Dr. Dowd, thanks for joining us. Tell us about yourself. Hello and good morning. Uh, my name is Emil Daoud. I'm chief of the cardiac electrophysiology program at The Ohio State University. My biggest failure in life is I've never been able to recruit Brad Knight back to lead our EP section. So uh, my mini history is I did my uh, internal medicine at Johns Hopkins, uh, cardiology and electrophysiology at the University of Michigan, and then uh, down at Ohio State. Excellent. Thanks, Dr. Dowd. Next up is Dr. Brad Knight. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Tell us about yourself. I'm Brad Knight. I'm the Director of Cardiac Electrophysiology here at Northwestern. I've been here for 14 years. I did my training at University of Michigan, and when I was a second-year resident, Dr. Emil Dowd showed up as a cardiology fellow from Hopkins with a big Hopkins attitude, and he was awesome, and uh, he was our CCU fellow. And so I got to work with Emil um, as I did my EP fellowship, and then we worked together on faculty briefly before he went back uh, to Columbus. And I stayed at Michigan on faculty for a few years, went to University of Chicago in 2002, and after six years there, came here to Northwestern. Well, Dr. Knight, I'll start with you. What are some general observations that you have had about the field of electrophysiology going through COVID? Um, what were some of the basic challenges that everyone can kind of relate to? Let's let's start there and see where this goes. Well, going through COVID, um, maybe I could take an even further level view. You know, Dr. Dowd and I were at University of Michigan in the early 90s when EP changed from a diagnostic field to an interventional field, and it was very different. And I think we uh, had a mentor there who's um, legendary, Dr. Fred Moradi, and I think we probably think of him a lot in our day-to-day decision-making. And it's a whole different world uh, now than it was then. Our field has changed a lot. We're much busier. Um, we're much more on the, the radar of the hospitals and insurance companies. But, you know, that uh, has really exploded with the development of ablation for atrial fibrillation. Uh, specifically to, to COVID, COVID... Um, was a challenge for electrophysiology for many reasons. One, we're very dependent on the hospital. I think some other subspecialties can do a lot of procedures in surgical centers and uh, not be quite as dependent on the hospital. So we really had to work closely with the hospital. Um, and it evolved over time from when the governor shut down hospitals, elective cases, we focused mainly on COVID. And then when COVID was not over, but we were still able to do cases with testing and 
um, you know, PPE, then I think we were doing both. We were struggling with how to take care of patients with heart rhythm disorders and also how to manage all these patients that were in the hospital with COVID. And we competed for nurses and space and um, resources during COVID. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, many things that Brad said, I agree with completely. Uh, shout out to our, our mentor, Fred. I concur. He was a great uh, leader in the field, both from you know, worldwide recognition as well as locally for us to uh, lean on and, and learn from him. I think, you know, when, when Brad and I were in training and on uh, early years of our career, uh, there was, uh, there's a lot of discovery going on in electrophysiology. You know, there's a constant challenge to learn more. So it was a very rapidly expanding, uh, very exciting field. It was still quite small. And, and in that regard, we didn't compare at all to what was going on in the interventional world. And I still remember the first large cardiology group in uh, uh, New York that went from private to academic and the, 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 the earthquake that happened within cardiology because suddenly all the hospitals were worried about losing that revenue stream. Uh, so that, that's, that was, I think that's a pivotal point. As far as COVID, I would just say a couple things. One is, um, you know, at OSU, and I don't know about uh, at Northwestern, but we have a few physicians who are over the age of 60. And uh, that was, they, there was a very personal worry about getting COVID, um, particularly early on when it was so rampant and there was a lot of scary events. Uh, but Brad's right, you know, a lot of the faculty left, uh, or not faculty, staff left rather, and uh, bringing them back into an invasive environment, meaning invasive procedures, um, uh, was a little worrisome to them. And we still haven't recovered in terms of our numbers of staff. Um, uh, and, and our protocols have come back to probably the way they were pre-COVID in terms of managing uh, patients and, uh, and procedures. All right, let's talk about managing lab staff and morale and handling cases and staffing. What are some things that you have both noticed about folks who have been maintained on your staff, how they've been able to surf all the craziness that's been going on and, and maintain their day-to-day -day activities? Dr. Knight, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I will uh, agree with you. It's probably the biggest challenge. Um, and I would kind of categorize it as the inpatient staffing needs and the outpatient staffing needs. But in the EP lab, we're very dependent on the nurses and technicians. And um, over COVID, I'm, I'm happy to say that we had very little turnover actually in our EP lab. I think we had one nurse leave in the last three years and two technicians leave in the last three years. Uh, and we had no turnover in clinic. But there were times when the hospital really required these nurses to be pulled up to the ICU to be covering. Uh, so they may not have left the institution, but they were pulled from uh, the EP lab. I think that we're always struggling with an adequate number of staffing because over time uh, hospitals have recognized it's a very expensive part of what they do, that their workforce expenses uh, represent a lot of their overall expenses. And the cost of nursing has also gone up. So we now have, I think, three traveling nurses in our EP lab, which um, is kind of representative of the rest of the hospital. Um, but I think the hospital runs lean on staff, and it becomes a challenge because it doesn't allow a lot of flexibility. So you might have enough staff on one day, but all you need is for one person to call in sick or have COVID, and suddenly you're running three labs with two techs, or you're running three EP labs with one tech. So there's no reserve, um, and it's hard 
you can imagine in other industries, you'd have people who are cross-trained. Um, our EP staff are pretty much dedicated to the EP lab. I think other hospitals have the flexibility of pulling staff from interventional radiology or from the cath lab to cover. Uh, but there are days that we're short-staffed, and it's a combination of shortages and uh, the COVID challenges. But I think on top of that, the hospitals are struggling financially, and they're very, very tight with spending. Even if you can make a business case that hiring one or two more people would generate uh, more, more volume and more cases, I think some of the decision-making is that they're just not going to hire more staff. And um, that, again, leads to not enough reserve. Now, I want to make sure we come back to that a little bit later. But Dr. Dowd, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, again, a uh, very similar scenario in our place, and I know at others. One other component, at least uh, I, th- I perceive, is that the salaries for the nursing and the technicians have gone up, but now there's competition. You know, as EP has grown to be, you know, I, I would, I, I know with pretty good confidence that the electrophysiology section in terms of profit margin is, is pretty uh, robust compared to other areas within cardiovascular management. And um, so, not only our hospital, but other hospitals need help. We lost, uh, within a matter of four months, four technicians to other institutions that were getting a higher salary, and they didn't have to leave the city. So it's competitive. I agree with Brad that, you know, you can do a business pro forma and really justify hiring staff. It doesn't seem to ring true at the administrative level. We're down one electrophysiologist. He's moved to Miami. But, you know, we could easily uh, hire three electrophysiologists and run eight labs. Currently, at least the past year, the major limitation to patient work or patient access to the EP labs have been adequate staffing to open up the labs, without a doubt. The only other staffing point I would say is device clinic is always challenging because those nursing staff are – overwhelmed with the the amount of digital data that's coming into us and uh, um, it takes a long time to train and uh, have a a device nurse be proficient in all the different companies um, uh, software so that's another area um, that is a little bit challenging. Well since you both brought this up let's go there when it comes to making the case I, I want to wrap a couple of things with this question because To me, it has to do with managing communication styles toward different people that are working in the environment, trying to keep somebody on staff or trying to persuade administration about revenue streams and potential. I'm interested in hearing from both of you how you might build or in some instances that you could give successful or not, how you build the case and how you make sure that it is not a unilateral conversation coming from just you in one perspective, but multiple perspectives making the case for the value of your program. Either one of you want to jump in on that? Well, I can expand a little bit on what Emil said. I, he, he's right that, um, you know, this is a big challenge, and I think it's um, it can add, it's a little bit of a source of frustration, I will say, amongst most uh, section chiefs of EP around the country, because we do um, feel strongly that there's a business case to be made, and it's uh, sometimes hard to understand why that's not um, agreed upon by the administrators who are agreeing to hire more people. So I think the problem is that the people we go directly to are charged with spending and have kind of short-term goals where um, how they do on their budget in the next three months is a higher priority than how the institution is going to do overall 
in the next year or longer, that's puzzling to us. I think they come from a different culture than, than we do. We're kind of convinced by data and like to move quickly. Yeah, I mean, I, I've never been an administrative, you know, purely administrative role. So I, I cannot imagine the headaches of running a big health system like Northwestern OSU. It's got to be an enormous challenge and predictive models and future costs and all that stuff. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm, you know, from that perspective, I'm going to make the following comments. Without a doubt at Ohio State University from the clinical aspect, the sole feature is patients. In other words, we need patient care to, um, you know, that's our task. That's why we have physicians. That's why they've spent, you know, uh, you know, 15 years of their lives learning is to specialize in this field to improve health. So you need access to patients. Patients' uh, care pays for the nursing, the research. They pay for the training. They pay for the physician salary, nursing salaries, the, the floors we stand on, the equipment we purchase. So it, it is, from my perspective, it's, it's paramount to focus on the clinical care. And, and we are graded, uh, you know, at the end of the year, there's always a meeting. They measure how much clinical value or clinical WRVUs you've generated, but they also look at, you know, manuscripts and mentoring and training. And, and, you know, that's, you know, I believe that's the big differentiator between OSU and Northwestern, meaning, uh, and other places, which is the training and the mentoring and the research. And, and it's not just, you know, something, a dollop of uh, whipped cream on top of ice cream at the end of the day. It's, it's really an integral part of everything we do. That's kind of a little difference in incentives. Um, so from Brad's right, I, my perception is um, it, it's easy math. <laughs> when you look at the per procedure revenue, um, there are very few procedures in electrophysiology that, are, uh, that lose revenue. Uh, and it's really hard not to um, make a case for hiring uh, staff to open more labs. Like many places, we have a long uh, queue for procedures in clinic, and, and we could do more. Um, and again, that's what we want to do, and it's great to have more staff and more ideas and more research, uh, more training. We're expanding our fellowship program. Um, from the administrative perspective, there's, I, I imagine, more headaches, but nonetheless, the, the primary focus there is probably revenue generation. But I think an important part is they focus on uh, different goals, meaning um, they have a budget that they have to meet at the end of the year. And uh, my perception is it's, it's a lot easier, uh, not, you know, through attrition to let staff go and suddenly the budget becomes uh, manageable, uh, reaching their targets at the end of the year rather than you know, for example, I'd love to open another EP lab. That's going to cost one, two, three million dollars in terms of reconstruction staff, et cetera. And uh, that will take probably, you know, that's a long-term plan. So now you have to go up to the board of the health system for a capital expense that is well uh, above the, um, the decision-making power of, say, even the hospital administration. You know, um, another, uh, I should say the, the heart hospital administration. So, you, you know, to get that process done takes many, many layers. You, you know, it's, the common is it's, you, you only need one no to put something, uh, put the brake on some process. Um, so it's the, the, we would like to move quicker, like Brad has mentioned. Um, the impact uh, that we can do quickly 
is um, relatively small to the big strokes that I think ne- need to happen, like uh, hiring more staff on a, you know, not just on a, re- uh, a short-term basis, but a long-term basis, um, expanding labs, um, expanding anesthetic services, uh, opening new offices for physicians to have clinic in, uh, hiring nurse, outpatient nursing staff. I've always said an EP program is not based on hiring an EP physician. You have to add all the other support stuff in order to be successful. It's really hard not to make a case, but um, there might be other layers that we don't understand. Mm, understood. I think the only solution is for us to be relentless. That we just have to, there's the only way that seems to work is that over time, I do think you get these resources that Emil and I have been talking about, but you can't just get it right away. It's got to be on their next budget cycle. So the time course that they operate on is very different than our time course, and you have to be patient. And I do think these resources do come. I mean, that's why programs like Emil's have been so successful is over time, you know, these resources will come and you will grow and they realize the benefit of the EP program to the hospital. But it, uh, it takes a lot longer than we would uh, like. I agree completely with Brad. You know, you, you do have to be diligent about it. Um, when I first arrived at OSU, I, had, I did not have that ingrained in me. <laughs> and I had to learn uh, perhaps the hard way that, um, you know, the goals that I had in my head can be achieved, but just takes uh, a different timeline than I, I had hoped. I don't want to get too academic here, but if I could, any of the listeners want to read something I find fascinating. There was a medical student here, and he had a sociology background, and he published something three years ago in PLOS One, which is an open access journal, and it was, uh, it was a, a, a sociologist's perspective on the different cultures between hospital administrators and physicians, and it was a very objective comparison about how we think differently in terms of time courses, uh, how our cultures are different, and it's, it, it's really, I, I think, an interesting read, but I think that Uh, It was 2019, and the title was The Growing Pains of Physician-Administrator Relationships in an Academic Medical Center and the Effects of Physician Engagement. And, again, it's very objective, and I think it's worth looking at. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, it's, 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 it's a challenge. It is our job to educate the administrators on what's changing in the field and to push them forward. You know, when we talk about pulse field ablation, that's very exciting from the um the biophysics and the possible applications for patient care and so forth. My biggest concern with that is um, how am I going to get that into my lab? And then if I have to do a capital expense for a new mapping system or generator, uh, and I, right now we have six invasive labs. So am I going to, you know, am I going to have to, you know, is, are we going to try to purchase six invasive, uh, six PFA systems? Are we going to go use only two labs for PFA and the other four will be uh, with the RF and cryo balloons that we have? Do we, you know, it's just, uh, it, it's going to be, you know, the, the, the technology is extremely exciting to most electrophysiologists, um, but the, the logistics of getting it into the hospital and selling it to them, meaning convincing them that the added costs are going to make, um, you know, some Im- improvements um, is going to be a challenge, particularly since, you know, the recent data doesn't necessarily show that it's going to be improved success. 
Um, but we'll see. You know, we're still waiting to learn that part. Yeah, of I share your anxiety. Uh, it's a perfect example. Um, and I think it also shows the um, problem with the difference between supply costs and capital costs. So most of these things, like Emil just brought up PFA, a lot of them fall in the category where you need both capital and supplies. And to make that case, you have to go to kind of two different people. If you need a new PFA console, that's going to cost you, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars. Someone's going to have to agree to purchase that. And then on top of that, you're going to have to do it to do a cost comparison between the PFA catheter and whatever diagnostic tools you'll use compared to what you're currently doing with RF and cryo. And if it's going to be more expensive, um, you know, in defense of the hospital, in general, they're not getting paid more for these, these cases. You know, there has been some growth in reimbursement to the hospitals, re certainly relative to the physicians. We can talk about that later, but um, they're not getting a dramatic increase. And if we use PFA and the Supply costs are another $5,000. Why would the hospital do that unless there's a really strong patient case? So what I'm hearing is be armed with data for sure, have patience, be persistent. But we're also talking about the relevance, right? Uh, relevance of a new vision, relevance of growth, relevance to the hospital and the community. Because it, it sounds like the challenges that you all are describing are not unique to your individual hospitals or, or hospital systems. They're they're across the board in the country. So that being the case, how can we stay relevant as a program, as a lab? Because things are changing so much. We, we can do everything, but we can't pay for everything. So we have to be selective, wise, and, and have to make business case for what we want. The way I coach some of the young people is I said, you should do what really motivates you because uh, I think it's hard to be excited about stuff that doesn't motivate you. And, uh, you know, that's not such a remarkable comment, but it is true. Sometimes people... For example, if somebody really gets into, is, is someone, uh, you know, because PFA is hot and um, new and exciting, you know, someone might want to get into that, but they're mu much more interested in device work. And I, I would say that's where you want to stay true because in terms of, you know, we, we, we don't talk about this enough, but in terms of physician satisfaction, you, you know, I, I, you got to enjoy your work. Everyone, you know, there's the finances and the hours, but you, the, the time you spend at work, I think, is critically important. And what makes a great program is, is that people enjoy coming in and working together. I, I strongly believe that success of programs is, is entirely based on, on people. You know, even if we don't get, uh, you know, every PFA system in our lab, we'll, we'll still give great care to patients. And I think that physicians will still enjoy working at Ohio State and we'll be able to do research and, and, and training. And, and so from that perspective, I would recommend people focusing on making sure that they're challenged and, and enjoying because um, we all have unhappy days from now and then. But, you know, in general, they want to come to work and they're motivated for that. Uh, as far as like relevance, there's some programs that focus on great clinical care, some programs that focus, they're, you know, they do a lot more um, clinical research. Some places, you know, pride themselves on great access to their physicians and labs and um, excellent care. I think we try to do a lot at OSU and as does Northwestern in terms of training and, and, and teaching, um, research, uh, great clinical care, playing with the latest technologies. But it also takes, you know, in our group, we have some people who do outstanding with devices. Uh, you know, I don't do extractions, thank God, that I have uh, colleagues that do. So um, it takes a village, without a doubt, to make a lab. Um, and you build it slowly but surely. I would agree with all those comments. Uh, you know, maybe my, my perspective is uh, very similar. So 
we have a f- group of nine EP faculty, and the only reason this works is that we all work well together, we cover for each other, we trust each other. Um, you know, and if I were to give advice to someone who's in the same position that Emil and I are in currently, I think uh, it's important to not a- ask anybody to do things that you're not willing to do. And although I don't do extractions anymore, uh, I think it's important for the person who's running the EP program to to do, you know, be on the consult service, to take call, to read monitors, to do, uh, I think if you um, do all those activities that you're expecting your colleagues to do, you, you're a little more empathetic and you know how to address issues that come up. You know, you asked how to stay uh, current. You know, in the past, it was pretty important and easy, you know, when a single chamber defibrillator was the only defibrillator available and a dual chamber defibrillator came out, you had to be able to uh, get that available for your patients. Um, so more and more, uh, the challenge is how can we make a clinical case uh, to stay current with new technology? But it's very important, whether it's for your trainees or for your patients, having the latest technology is, is a really critical part of the program. And then personally staying on top of these procedural skills. And when I finished my EP fellowship in the mid-90s, there were kind of two categories of people who finished their training, the ones that adopted AF ablation, which were largely the ones that were at academic centers that felt comfortable taking the next step. We weren't even doing transeptal catheterization in the mid-90s. We'd have the cath lab come do that. And the other half of, I'd say, my peers uh, never adopted AF ablation. Uh, they may have 15 years later and finally come around, and or they just never did. So I think... Uh, it's really critical to see what's coming down the road and start getting skilled at those activities, whether it's leadless pacing or physiological pacing. You can't, uh, you can very quickly get obsolete in EP. Amen. Yeah, no doubt. I'm curious about the things right now that have you flat out excited. Sure, challenge is great, but I'm curious about the things that have you excited to get out of bed in the morning and, and go to work. Well, honestly, I don't think they're high-level things that get us excited. They, I get excited when I bring a patient to the EP lab who has post-maze flutter, and they go into flutter, and it turns out to be a CTI-dependent flutter. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's just you get excited about uh, cases that um, are super interesting or go very well, and you really feel like you help the patient. I don't think it's the 30,000-foot issues that get me up in the morning. It's the individual patient cases and taking care of people and, you know, getting a thank you card from a patient. Those are the things I think that uh, we get that maybe other people in the hospital don't get that drive us. Yeah, without a doubt. The enjoyment that I get from my work is uh, the interaction with the people at work and the satisfaction that we can see with our patient care. And that's why, you know, research is exciting because it provides new discovery and and for improving both those experiences the clinical care uh and the the successes and and quite frankly you know when we have bad outcomes um or things go awry it's it's a shared uh experience and that that you know the good and bad get shared among the 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 staff uh you know the lab staff and the physicians and i think that that also not so much excites me but makes me feel good about the program we have in terms of the camaraderie and the, the and the support so um the uh i don't you're, you know opening up a new lab would be a great excitement um but i'm not sure if that's what gets me up in the morning each day 
Mm-hmm. Now, how do you work with your lab managers and, and how do you keep your staff really invested in being an EP? Yeah. I, I, so, you know, that's, that's a good question because I, I'm I sometimes in a rock and a hard place uh, because we have a, uh, 11 nurse practitioners, um, outpatient, inpatient, and, um, you know, obviously the staff and then the, the faculty. And, and so I do feel somewhat responsible trying to keep, you know, all the, the pieces of the puzzle fit in and working well. I do think that sometimes I wear a hat that's a little bit different than an EP section hat. And so we try to not so much address the administrative logistics of hiring and, and attrition and nurse practitioners, but, um, you know, trying to, to, to get them engaged with the program as a whole so they, they understand that they're not just doing a pre-procedure HMP, but they're you know, assessing a patient and the follow-up, and they see the same patient that they saw in, in the hospital. So they like that follow-up. I think that it'll come back with um, greater enjoyment for them and the program. Yeah, it's a challenge. I meet with my EP lab manager every Friday, uh, and she meets regularly with all the staff. Um, you know, as the, the head of the EP program, you have to kind of um, set a tone. You know, when you're in the EP lab doing a case, you got to make sure everybody's taking things seriously and they're focused. On the other hand, you have to spend time, I think, with individual staff and get to know them on a personal level because I, I don't determine the salary of the nurses. I don't determine their schedule per se. And I think the way that you can uh, show that you're on their side really is just to kind of get to know them on a personal level. Uh, there are things you can do. Small changes can make a difference. You know, we have uh, an outpatient device clinic. Uh, some are nurses, some are technicians, and some of our technicians were in the HR categories that made no sense. They were like in the same categories as an EKG tech, so you have to, uh, you know, educate the administrators. These are not EKG techs, and they should be paid more, and that's why they're leaving, and so you can, you can guide uh, changes, I think, to promote your staff, and uh, you know, I, I like to say there's people who work for the people below them and people who work for the people above them. And, you know, I think you got to do a little bit of both, but you definitely have to help out the people uh, who are not necessarily below you, but in people who you're in a position to help. Yeah, I, I just want to echo those comments. There's, that, that's, those are good points, Brad. The, um, the, the radiation technologists in our EP labs do so much more then at least, you know, I perceive them doing a lot more than what a, a, other radiation technologists do. And so, um, you know, uh, we've had to compose a, a letter to make that aware to the HR people who sit, you know, in a, on the other side of campus. They have no idea what's going on. Our lab manager is awesome. I think she's done a great job. The nursing staff work shoulder to shoulder with the radiation technologists, but they get paid a higher salary, and, they, and there's not a other than pushing medications. There's not a whole lot difference in what they do day to day, and that creates some issues. Fortunately, she's been great at managing that, um, and um, we have what's called an EP operations committee that has three EP faculty and then two administrators, and we meet uh, to discuss things. Uh, and I'm actually I'm not on that committee, partly by design, so that. Um, Others can express how, a, you know, what, how they perceive the operations of the EP lab should go. And, and you know, um, it's a challenge, though. <laughs> Our lab managers have a lot on their plate. Yeah, we haven't talked about a lot of topics like research and trainees and fellows, but I think something that a lot of people in the hospital and outside of EP aren't aware of is our 
close relationship with industry, and I'm not saying that because my Cardell rep is next to me, but, uh, you know, wow, I think unknown by a lot of people, even patients, that almost every case I do, I have a rep there, whether it's a device implant or uh, an ablation, and, and you know, uh, having them, uh, they have issues too, uh, getting into the hospital and, you know, access to lockers and things like this. You have to also um, really do the best you can to support them uh, because the hospital doesn't always see it that way. EP is without a doubt a technology science. We can't treat the patients and manage their diseases without technology. And uh, the technology companies get a lot of their ideas uh, from the science that's discovered, you know, on the first generation product to, the, to develop a second generation product. So there is, uh, you know, back and forth. The, the, the tough part is, you know, and I think, I don't know if Brad has this, you know, you have these contracts at hospitals and the hospital is paying the bill um, for, let's say, a defibrillator or an ablation catheter. Um, they have to, you know, then go to an insurance company to get reimbursed. And it's a complicated uh, strategy um, to make the, uh, the bottom line work well. But without a doubt, you know, they, they should be considered partners. Um, and, um, and I think the administration recognizes that. Uh, but unfortunately, the problem is, is that there's so many different partners that we're engaged with that it becomes hard to to, and I get the, how the administrators have to struggle to look for cost savings within this relationship. Well, if you don't mind me asking, w- could you define the value of one of these external partners? Because again, there's there's good and bad. Uh, you've been around long enough to say, you know, what are the hallmarks of a valuable partner that you could enumerate just briefly for us? Well, I think it's experience and experience with you. So it's um, whether it's a device implant or left atrial appendage closure or an ablation, a very experienced company industry partner is invaluable sometimes, but also um, a person that you've worked with because you kind of develop your own workflow. And um, I think you, you feed off of that over, over many years. Yeah, I concur. I would say that uh, there was a, a time in my life where we had a, um, an administrator who took the same approach as the EP physician, which was he uh, met with the each company representative from the region. Uh, he traveled to the companies and met with them, looking at the technology. I mean, he really, uh, I was impressed by him trying to learn the science um, and as well as the numbers. Um, and I think that's, a, uh, you know, when you talk about partners in technology, you know, that's where I think you can, um, you, I think administrators need to be involved in that aspect of it as well so they can make, they understand um, when they're making these really multi-million dollar decisions regarding product that sits on the shelf. But Brad's right, uh, uh, the technology is first and then the, the assistant or the rep needs to, you know, be a, a good working partner. What would your advice be to someone who is in your position? Uh, you have your things you love about the more procedural components, but then the, the headaches sometimes everyone deals with when, when you move into an administrative role. What is your outlet? Finding a network, uh, finding a person who you can bounce things off of. What, what advice would you give our listener who is new to being a lab director or maybe struggling and feeling a little bit isolated uh, with what they're dealing with? 
I were to talk to someone who was newly in a position of head of EP, I would probably tell them a couple things. One, um, talk to other people. Um, I think, you know, Emil and I and people in our position frequently will contact each other and ask questions. How are you handling this situation? What are you doing in this specific COVID situation? We, we should take advantage of the fact that you can call any I would imagine head of EP at anywhere in the country and they're going to take your call and, and help you. So I think we have a good network. We have a good culture in EP and uh, a new person in a leadership role could take advantage of that. Um, you know, and, and I don't want to sound too old school, but I mean, the reality is you have to really put a lot of effort and time into it. You can talk about quality of life and work-life balance and all that, but I'm sure Emil will tell you that it takes a lot of sacrifices and time it's still nights and weekends, and uh, you really, if you want to make a big impact, uh, you, you can't just do this kind of a job nine to five. That's old school. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah as usual, I agree with Brad. I, I um, you know, as that last comment here, I am on my, you know, mini vacation in the deep woods of Michigan doing this, but the the uh but i love it i enjoy it so i am committed to the program um i'm surrounded by other people who are committed to the program i'm committed to them so i don't want to let them down um and um uh, but brad's right when if i was starting all over again the, the things i would tell myself right now is patience 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 um uh particularly when you start at a place you have this um you have this concept that you have to prove yourself uh, quickly and um, uh, at bigger institutions, or uh, it just doesn't go that quickly. And I don't, uh, you know, I, I take that pressure off your shoulder and try to, uh, you know, have small victories that build up over time. Um, without a doubt, leaning on other more experienced um, uh, faculty within your program is helpful. I got a great help from my division chief, but in theory, I guess he was grading me, but he was also a great resource of how to navigate Ohio State University, and he'd been there for a long time, and it was interesting when I, I remember very well the meeting with him where he said, you know, he shared almost the exact same sentiments that I had, which was things were moving so slowly. So don't forget about the other people within your institution, but of course, colleagues across the, the country, and uh, as far as the administration, uh, I think it is helpful to encourage them to just look at other places because I think I'm not sure how well they uh, interact with other programs and I'm not certain how well they fully appreciate some of the nuances for an EP lab versus, you know, running an orthopedic lab or uh, some other type of programs where they may have come from. This podcast is sponsored by Biosense Webster, Inc., the information contained in this podcast and findings and conclusions expressed are those reached independently by the authors. Copyright 2023, Johnson & Johnson Services, Inc. All rights reserved. EOS number 251616-230-6264.